to sometimes sit down and just read a book. One of the series that I started probably 15, 20 years ago was by a fantasy author called Robert Jordan. His last one in the series comes out next year. He's passed away already, so someone else has to write it because he took forever to write the jolly thing. My kids sat down and started reading that with me and all. We got through the first one and that was really exciting. And the second one was really good too and the third one was okay and the fourth one was not bad. He didn't write any differently. It's just that it got so complicated. By the time he got to 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, the story was so wide that you never got anywhere in a book that thick. Now, we're at the end of the series now, so there's only a couple of books, there was only one book left, but the last few books have been really exciting again because everything's coming together at the end and things are moving along. My kids stopped reading in that little bit because it was really hard to get up. A bit of excitement going through there. I persevered through to the end. And I'm going to have to read the whole thing again before book 14 or 15 comes out, whichever one it is just to remind myself. When I read chapters 20, 21 and 22 and thought putting all of this together, it reminded me a little bit about that book. Kind of in that middle section where there's all these sorts of themes that seem to be going through the text and to try and pull something out of these three chapters and say that's what it's about. It was a struggle. It really was. Because it seems to me that the author in this is, is kind of tidying up little bits and pieces before he gets down to the end part of the book where he kind of finishes off what he wants to say in this and in Second Samuel when he talks about David the king. He seems to be a bit all over the place. And he tells three stories, four stories in this couple of chapters. And rather than read through it with you as he's kind of weaving these bits and pieces throughout, I'd like to just pick some of these themes as he goes through and just look at each of them as it comes up. So that's that's, that's our task for this morning, to kind of tell the story but have a look at the themes, pull them apart and say how do we we apply this? How do we we take something from it? Because it's, it's a historical narrative, it's a story that he's telling and because he's kind of pulling bits and pieces together There's not a whole major point he's focusing on, but he does want us to understand what God is doing. So let's have a quick look at it. It starts off with David. He's Well, if you remember from last week, um, Saul has tried to kill David and now Saul was uh, taken by the Spirit of God and he was prophesying. He was given this, I suppose, another opportunity to know of God's grace. But David flees from him at the start of chapter 20 And he goes and he sees Jonathan and he says, Jonathan, your dad's trying to kill me. And there's this story that happens where Jonathan works out with David a way to find out if Saul really is wanting to kill David. Now we know from what we've read that Saul is slowly going nuts here at trying to kill Dave. And in these three chapters we actually see in some ways the progression of a person who has turned their back on God. And so the first theme that comes out in these chapters is it's got something to do with Saul. Saul has thrown his spear twice at David. He sent men to kill David. 
And in this chapter, in these three chapters, we have some stories which tell us a little bit more about how Saul, as someone who has stopped trusting in God, how that affects his life. Jonathan and David make up this story where David was supposed to go into a feast with Saul and Jonathan and Abner and they were supposed to be a celebration, a new moon festival or something. And David says, well, I'm not going to go. And Jonathan, when your dad notices, or Jonathan makes up, when my dad notices that you're not there, I'll say, well, I gave you permission to go and visit your family and see how he reacts. And if he reacts really negatively, you'll know he is trying to kill me. Well, this is what happens. And a couple of days later, Saul actually sees that David isn't there. And so he says to Jonathan, where's David? What's going on? And Jonathan says in verse 28 of chapter 20, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favour in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. What happens with Saul? someone who's stopped trusting in God, he flares up in this huge rage and he says to his own son, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. (laughs) Blame the mum. Not my fault. You're like you are. (laughs) Don't I know you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame (laughs) and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now go and get him, he must die. Samuel knows that David's likely to be the ruler and he gets really angry at Jonathan and blames Jonathan's mother and he gets mad at her. And Jonathan just turns around and asks a very sensible question, what's he done? Because this was David's concern at the beginning of this chapter. What have I done? What's going on? But Saul picks up his spear and throws it at his own son to kill him. He wants to kill David, who's against him, and now he's prepared to kill his son because his son is standing in the way of where he wants to go. And if we go down two chapters to chapter 22, the last one, we see the progression of Saul even further. David flees. He goes to the priests of Nob and the priests of Nob help him out. We'll get to this a little bit later. And Saul, in the the third story here, finds out that these priests have helped David. So he starts off by just making a sacrifice that he shouldn't have and he doesn't repent. He tries to kill Dave, he tries to kill his son and now he has the priests and all their families and all their kids killed. He has them slaughtered. Not because they're against him but just because they helped David. He has them slaughtered. And one of the themes that the writer's trying to show here is just the progression of Saul. If you like, to what we would see as 
some sort of insanity. He, he no longer recognises, if you like, what makes sense and what doesn't because he's kind of kept God out of the picture. He no longer turns to God for help. He puts his trust in his own strength. One of the things that made me laugh as I was reading this is that in chapter 21 when Saul hears that David has fled somewhere, he's sitting under a tree holding on to his spear. And I thought to myself, this guy can't throw for nuts. He's thrown it at David twice and missed. He throws his own son and misses. And what's he trusting in as he sits under a tree? The thing he can't hit anything with. It just doesn't make any sense. But this is where he's come to. At the feast, the scripture says that he's sitting with his back to the wall. He no longer trusts anybody except himself. Why? Because he's turned away from trusting God. And the writer wants us to have this as one of the things that we pick up through these three chapters. How Saul is moving further away from God and that the further he moves away from God the more it shows itself out in the life that he lives and the impact that it has on his relationships and the deeds that he does. What can we learn from that? I think if we look through the whole of scripture it pretty much says that the heart of us as people is wickedness. And that if we reject God then wickedness flows out from us. And that the more that we turn away from God and don't take the opportunities that God gives us to come back to him in repentance. The harder and harder and harder it gets. But not only the harder it gets to turn back from God, but the harder our heart gets. And the worse the results to the folk around us. Now I don't know about you, but I look back at my own life and I know the times when I've done something I oughtn't and I've hurt somebody not just God, but others. The more my pride kicks in and I won't go back and deal with it, the worse and worse and worse and worse and worse it gets. Something that was small becomes something huge. And I no longer deal with it in some ways what you might call rationally. I look at the times when I've got angry at just a little thing, but because of not dealing with the situation, the anger gets out of control. And then you kind of have a look back and you think, well, why am I this angry over that? That doesn't make any sense. So if I look at an application for us as the family of God, it's this. If there are issues in your life, particularly between you and the Lord, that you know about, don't ignore them. Because the scripture is fairly clear and we see this lived out in Saul's life that the more you ignore it, the harder and harder it gets to deal with. The harder and harder it is for you to actually come and focus in and looking at that issue. And same with the people around you. There's a brokenness in your family for one reason or another. And you ignore it. You say, well, it's not a big deal. Well, it gets harder and harder. And it doesn't matter how old the people are who you have the brokenness with, whether they're your children or your parents or your partner. The more you don't deal with it, the harder and harder and harder and harder it is. And the more nuts you become because the situation gets out of control. 
And we're called upon to be Christian people who love the Lord, who act in response to what the Lord has done for us, which is in grace and love and forgiveness and repentance. So might I encourage you, if you know that there are those broken relationships that are going on, particularly between you and the Lord, there's an area of your life that just ain't right, or between you and someone else in the family here, or between you and your extended family, or your nuclear family, deal with it. God keeps giving us opportunities, but the more we turn away and the more we reject them, the harder and harder it is to deal with it. And God's judgment comes even stronger upon us. The second thing, the second thing. He wants to tidy up a little loose end, or if you want, the loose end of Eli. David flees after he hears from Jonathan that his dad really does want to kill him, and so he runs off. We'll get to this later, but David's a bit nuts too. He's out of sorts because he's had two days to prepare while he waits for Saul's answer. And yet he doesn't get a backpack ready with anything. He doesn't put muesli bars, bread, water, nothing. He didn't even put his sword in there. So he rushes off and he arrives down at this place called Nomi. He says, I'm hungry and I don't have any weapons. And he goes to the priest there and he says, can you help me? We'll get to the story in more detail when we look at the third theme, which is Dave. But the priest, Ahimelech, says, bit scared, yeah, yeah, I can help you. Uh, We've got the bread that was beaten on the altar. You can take that. Uh, And here's Goliath's sword. And so he runs off with that and Dave disappears to do a few other things. Well, when Saul finds out that the priest of Nob has helped, he finds out because this guy called Doeg, D-O-E-G, that's how I'm saying it, Doeg, says the priest at Nob helped Dave and Doeg worked for Saul. So Saul says to them, go and bring the priest and all his family. So he rocks up with this priest and his whole family and Saul goes ballistic and he says to his men, kill him for helping Dave. And his men say, they're priests, families, no, we're not going to kill him. We're not going to do it. So he says to Doeg, you do it. And so Doeg does and he kind of kills the whole lot of them. Now that I was reading all of this, I don't know about you, but what do you feel about Doeg? Think, what is, firstly, he snitches which is just wrong in anybody's book. But then he he kills all these people. There's something particularly nasty about this guy. But I was reading chapter 21, verse 7, it says this, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. That's the reason he saw what happened to Ahimelech and David. And I was thinking, what, why is this brought up? What's the point of this whole deal? One guy only from the whole family escapes and his name is Abiathar. So I'm pondering all of this in my mind. I'm saying, what's this guy talking about? 
We only hear of Abiathar one other time. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, in the time of Solomon, Abiathar is still alive. He was a priest, and it says this in 1 Kings 2, 27. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word of the Lord that was spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. Yeah. He's trying to tidy something. If you go right back to Samuel chapter 2 when we started this, he says this, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And what the writer is doing here is he brings out the story to remind us that God had made a promise that because of Eli's wickedness his whole family would be destroyed. His sons died on the same day as Eli did in accordance with the promise earlier on in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And when Eli heard the news, he died and Phineas's wife died but she gave birth to a son who was called Ichabod. But Ichabod had an older brother and we read about that earlier on in 1 Samuel 14. When Saul was just getting going, it talks about Ahijah who was wearing an ephod, he was a priest, he was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahidab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. So what we have is Eli has now died, his sons have died, a couple of his grandsons live, and in this chapter we hear the story of God's promise coming true, fulfilled. Does that mean that God did this stuff, that God caused it all to happen. The wickedness of Saul and the wickedness of Doeg is their responsibility. But through all of that, God's promise, his punishment, came about. And the author wants us to see that God's word is sure. For good with David... And in judgment for Eli's family. And through what Doag does here, through the circumstances of David rushing off without his backpack, for the shepherd being there, through all of that, God brings about that which he has said will happen. Because God will not allow wickedness to continue. It reminded me of all that happened in Christ Jesus and I thought through of what happened with Judas betraying Christ. That through the wickedness and the sinfulness of the Pharisees and the high priests and Judas, God's purposes for justice and redemption came. And this is the theme that we have coming through this passage is this story of Doeg and Abiathar and this family is there. And the writer wants us to understand right from the beginning as he's gone through this this bit about Eli, he closes it off, that God's word comes true 
through all the circumstances, whether God blesses them or people in their wickedness and sin carry stuff out, what God intends will happen. Now, if we take that and we say, what do we learn from that? What can that encourage us in or chastise us in this morning? I've rarely been in a church which is as biblically literate as you guys. In other words, you know the word of God. You hear the word of God, you study the word of God. Have a conversation with you. Many of you, you know the stories, you know the gospel. Be encouraged that that which you know is true. That the promises that you read about will come about that through all the circumstances of life, God will have his way. Matt Ford preached at, uh, spoke, preached, I think he preached, at um, Infusion this last Friday night. And he did a great job. He was answering a question that had been raised about do Christians have sort of an easy life? You know, why would you become a Christian if, if it's harder to be a Christian than it is not to be? And he went back and he did the scriptures. And he pretty much said, very well, that it's not easier in one sense being a Christian, it's a lot tougher. You get the persecution of the world, you get people who dump on you, you get people who reject you. Christ promises that that's going to be our life. But then the second part of his talk, he said, but these are the promises of God that we have. This is what God has said he will do in us. He will persevere us. He will do good for us. He will give us his spirit. He will guide us. And he went through, he had seven or eight more. They are the promises of God. And as I was reading through this, it was an encouragement to me that not only does God bring his judgment, and we need to be aware of that, but he brings his blessing. And that should infuse our thinking in our minds. Why am I passionate about having an alpha course or doing evangelism stuff or getting out into the community? Because it's true what God promises. He will bring his judgment on those who don't know him. And if we really believe that, we'll take him at his word, then we would be passionate about going and sharing with those people who don't know because we know that God's judgment will come on them. It doesn't matter how nice they are, what sort of lovely life they've lived. If they don't know Christ, they're damned. We have this story here. We look at the priest of Nob and we say, that's not fair. But God has said, this will happen to your family. Turn back. Repent. And Eli didn't. And God's work comes true. So that should make us passionate. But on the other hand, he promises for those who are his that through all the trials of life, through all the difficulties that go on, he's with us. He cares for us and we might not always see it, but we can stand firm in the fact that he's there. God's word is true and it will always come true. That's the second thing. The third theme has to do not with Saul who's not repented and he actually gets further away from God. It's not about Eli where God's word comes true in judgment upon him. 
The third theme, I suppose, is David in his kingship. A man after God's own heart. And he wants to develop more of the character of David and talk, if you like, a little bit more about the kingship. In the first story, when David comes to Jonathan and says, I don't know what's going on with you and with my, your dad and me. Jonathan says, I know that God's with you. And Jonathan and David enter into this covenant where Jonathan says, may God do to David's enemies. May God take care of David's enemies if I don't do this sort of stuff. The words that he used, the phraseology that he used, he's basically acknowledging, Dave, you're going to be king after me. And then when he talks with his dad, Saul says, how can you side with David? Don't you know that if you side with David, you're not going to be king? And you've got this beginning awareness that David is going to be the next king. David runs off to the priests of Nod and he's not planned very well. And he says, I'm hungry. The priest of Nod give him some of the bread off the altar and the sword. Now in all of that situation, one of the things that strikes me as interesting is David lies to the priest of Nob. He tells a fib. That always bugs me, just a little bit. Jonathan tells a fib to his dad. David tells a fib to the priest of Nob. Then David gets this sword of Goliath, which I suppose he puts on his back, kind of like Conan, holds the bread in his hands, and where does he go? He's got Goliath's sword on his back. He's just been to the priest of Nob. He's running from Saul. Where would you head? Caloundra. That's where I go. Somewhere where nobody knows or has heard of before. But no, David doesn't. He runs off to Gath, Goliath's hometown. Goes nuts. So he runs off to hide in Gath. And the people of Gath say, hey, isn't that Dave? That's Goliath's sword on his back. That looks like Dave. So they say to Achish, this is the king of Israel. You have an acknowledgement by Jonathan, the son of Saul, and then you have an acknowledgement by the Philistines that this guy is really the leader of that nation. And Dave acts a bit crazy, lets his saliva run down his beard, which I must admit for you ladies who don't understand, when it dries, it gets really awful. So that's why I keep it short. Because right? when I drool at home, it just doesn't stick. And Achish gets rid of him and throws him out. And then where does David run? He's not allowed to be at Achish because he's not allowed to be in Gath because the king Achish is going to kill him. So he runs off and hides in a cave somewhere and surrounds himself with a following. A group of people who say, we want you to be our leader. And we have this development going on as David not only is recognised as king, but he has a group of people who surround him. Fascinatingly, if you're interested, the people who start surrounding him are the discontents. 
the unemployed and the people who can't pay their taxes and all those other sorts of you know, malcontents start saying this is our king. But it's a start, right? And then he enters into an agreement with the king of Moab. So there's these two things that are going in the development of David. This recognition that he's a king and yet as I see him slowly being recognised more as a king, you see this other side of him and you think, why on earth would God want to make this guy king? He can't plan, he can't plan a hiking trip. He goes to the dumbest place for his hiking trip. He has to hide in a cave with a whole lot of malcontents and he runs off to his enemies. What's going on? Why would God choose this guy? Choose Harry Butler or someone. He was a guy who used to go walking a lot in the news. Um, pick someone else. But then it's interesting. There are four or five Psalms in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, where David talks about, we read one of them today, when he was pretending to be insane or when he's in a cave or when he's talking about Doeg and he reflects on God. This is one of the differences between Saul and Dave. In, in many ways I think this is why Dave was the one who was, whom God said, this is a man after my own heart. Even through the dumb things that he did, even through his foolishness, if you like, even through his sin, as he came into life and recognised the difficulties he was going through, his inclination of his heart was to turn to God. The psalm that we read at the beginning of this, this service, this, this sermon, was a psalm in this situation. And if you read that, you think, God, this guy knows you. He really knows you, Lord. He's depending upon you. And that was why he was the one who was going to be king. Because no matter what the circumstances of life were, his heart was after God. And what do we learn from that? I don't know about you, but as I walk through my life, I know there are times when I do foolish things, I make mistakes, I'm not there. And I think to myself, why would you pick me to be your child? Why would you pick me to serve? Why would you want me? And it's an encouragement to me, the fact that what God desires from me is the same heart of David. Which as I go through the difficulties of life, as I go through the, the mess I make of the things around me, then my heart turns back to him. When we read in this psalm, sometimes you turn back in repentance. I'm so sorry I stuffed up. I'm sorry I hurt that person. I'm sorry I did this. But it's a dependence that God is the one who will get you through that situation. That's the heart that God desires of us. See, that's what Saul never learned. Saul 
stayed away from God. He didn't turn back to God. David, through his mistakes here, through his fleeing, through his difficulties, turns back and reflects upon all that God is and all that God's done. And God rescues him and brings him back. And right at the end, the prophet of Gad finally comes and takes David by the ear and drags him off and says, that's where you need to go now. And David says, thanks very much. God will bring us to the place where he wants us to be if our heart's dependent and trusting on him. There are other themes in there, but we'll stop there. So what can we take away and remember for the next week? Number one, if you've been rebellious against God, turn back to him. Don't stay away from God. If you've begun to do something wrong and you know it's not right, stop now because it just gets worse. Know that God is truthful to his word. He's promised that in those situations he will forgive you. He's promised that he will restore you and lift you up. Be like David and turn to him, reflect on him and have the goodness that God promises be something that's evident and real in your life. But know this, if you don't, God's word is also true that if you continue to reject him, he won't persevere forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you might encourage each of us to turn our hearts and our minds upon yourself that we reflect on Jesus and all that he has done for us. That we might read your word, believe your word and apply your word to our lives. Live the truth of Christ in our everyday experience because you are trustworthy, our God. Father, some of us have issues in our lives that we haven't dealt with, relationships that are broken, sin that's ongoing, rebellion that has been festering away for a long period of time. Father, I pray that we will not be like Saul and leave these things undealt with, but that we will deal with them even today. And Father, if there's a time of prayer at the end of this service down the front, I pray that anyone who needs needs to talk this thing through with you, might come and pray, might come and get right with you this morning. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if we could just still stand, we're going to sing um, I Am Carried. Just a lovely song expressing that um, even in times that we don't feel we can do it on our own. We've got to turn back to God as um, Pastor David has been just telling us.